0: Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest once again today from the United States is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute. And uh, we've been talking about uh, this amazing book of Daniel. And today we're up to chapter 10. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, what actually happens in Daniel chapter 10? Daniel chapter 10 is the next,
1: the last of the series of the visions that conclude the book so as we've gone through the book of Daniel the first half is mostly historical and then the second half is a series of visions and the visions occur at various points during the historical timeline of Daniel so this one is dated to somewhere just after the end actually of the timeline that we have within the historical part of the book so this is three years into the reign of king Cyrus. And in this period of time, there is concern for Daniel, obviously. He's seeing what's happening after Cyrus has come to the throne, the downfall of Babylon. What is going to become of the people of Israel? And that question is obviously keen in his mind. And presumably he's heard word from people. And this is a distressing message for him. You can think of something similar to this in the story of Nehemiah, as he receives news from Hananiah, his brother. Now, here in this situation, he's mourning for 21 days. And this is in the first month of the year he hears this news. And then the Lord appears to him and another vision next to a river. And this is the start of the final visions. This is an, a vision that begins the series of the prophecies. So it's a very dramatic and remarkable theophany. I think it's right to call it a the theophany and argue for that as we go through. And then things were explained to him as he encounters the angel Gabriel again. The angel Gabriel explains why it's taken so long to reach him. And then he gets a bit more of a sense of some of the things that are going on behind the scenes with the struggles that he is experiencing on the ground from an earthly perspective. And he gets to see
0: something of what's taking place from a heavenly perspective. Yes, he's called Belteshazzar here, isn't he? That, that's fascinating. Is, is there a connection being made between Daniel and Belshazzar back in Chapter 5? The names are certainly similar. And so
1: James Jordan, I think, suggests that we can see them almost as sorts of twinned, um,
0: contrasted characters. Mm. What's the significance of the 24th day of the first month? Because that has significance in the Jewish calendar, doesn't it? So the first month is associated with some of the primary feasts of the year. So
1: the first month on the 14th day, it was the Feast of Passover. And then after that, you would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this is a very significant time of the year. Daniel has been fasting for a period of time. So he's been fasting for three weeks.
0: So presumably that period started prior to the time of Passover. So he presumably hasn't partaken of or taken the Passover. Yes. So he's he's been fasting
1: over the period of this particular mm, feast,
0: which puts him in a a vulnerable position, as we're about to see. Now, who is the man who appears to Daniel, this magnificent vision that we have in chapter 10? Who are we seeing? Well, that's the $64,000 question. I think we should see this in the
1: light of other descriptions that we have elsewhere in scripture that are very similar to this. So the place I'll go to is Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 17 if memory serves and in that passage we have a vision of the apostle John where he sees our Lord Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now that is very similar, first of all, to the vision that Daniel sees, and secondly, to the response that he has to the vision that he sees. Now, why would he see this at this particular point? Well, the vision itself is about the figure in question. So I think the vision is fulfilled in the revelation of the one who is being witnessed in this, in this theophany. And so when the figure of Michael, I think Michael is here a name for Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, when he arises, it will be this person that Daniel has seen that will, whose glory will be um, displayed. And that is something that... John sees in Revelation, and I think it's interesting seeing the way that John is drawing very heavily upon the prophecy of Daniel, the one like the Son of Man. He's the one who's described in language that's redolent of the description here, but also of the descriptions
0: of chapter 7. Why is the Lord Jesus in this chapter dressed like the high priest of Israel? Well, we've been thinking about some of the crisis that's facing the nation they need
1: purification. They need to have the problem of sin and guilt addressed. And so what do you need for that? You need a sort of glorious high priest. The son of man needs to be someone who can come before the throne of God and actually make atonement, prepare a way for people to enter into God's presence. And so the vision that we have here is of the figure who's suitable to perform the sort of atonement that is needed. We saw that at the end of the preceding chapter, that there was this prophecy of the end of the 70 weeks of years that atonement would be
0: made. And this, it seems to me, is the figure who will do so. What's the significance of the fact that Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, appears to Daniel above a river?
1: Again, we this is the second time we've had a river. Mm. Um, we had a river just a couple of chapters ago in the Yulai Canal. And now we've got another river. You have another river vision in Ezekiel chapter one with the appearance of the throne chariots. And again, that's over the, the place of the river Kibar or the Kibar canal where he's with the exiles. Now this river might be seen as a place of transition. Christ is the one who's the bridge between the two sides. That's another way to see it. But this is a transitional point within history. And I think, the place of the uh, vision over the river might suggest something of that. We might think about the way that Israel's existence is defined by river crossings and water crossings, crossing the great river, the river Euphrates, on the other side of which they served other gods before they were called from Ur of the Chaldees. Then there's the being in um, entering into the land, crossing the Jabbok, Jacob receives his name Israel at that point, um leaving egypt crossing the red sea and then entering into the promised land crossing the jordan israel's life is defined by these and this is another the son of man standing over the river
0: i think is a significant thing in the light of all of those water crossings that we've had previously dearon i suggest do we have another allusion back to the creation account in genesis 1
1: we could perhaps read it that way too the spirit of god hovering over the waters mm. and we see that in genesis chapter 1 we see it in the flood We see something similar to that in the Red Sea, where the wind of the Lord blows over the waters. And so this is a context of new creation and things being drawn out of the waters. That's the way that the Red Sea crossing is described in Isaiah chapter 63. It's a creation from the waters. So maybe this is another way of seeing what's taking place here.
0: Yes. How does the vision, I want to go back to to Daniel chapter two and the image of that metal man that we spoke about. Yes, this is the true metal man. So we've had a false metal man or a metal man of the,
1: of the nations and their great empires. And that is crushed by the stone cut without hands. And now we have a metal man that will not be crushed, the metal man that will take their place. So we've seen the son of man back in chapter seven. And this is a vision of the son of man as the metal man. And so I think reading those two things alongside each other, we can see that this is the true reality that
0: corresponds to the the limited human counterpart in chapter two. Does Daniel undergo a kind of death and resurrection experience in this chapter? We have seen something similar to that, just a couple of chapters earlier.
1: And I think there is a sort of death and resurrection here. And throughout the book of Daniel, there are several of these. There's the death and resurrection of um, going into the lion's den. There's the death and resurrection of the friends in the fiery furnace. There's the death and resurrection that he has in the receiving of this vision in chapter nine. So I think this is maybe a recurring theme. And at the very end of the book, there are themes of resurrection as well in chapter 12. So perhaps we are supposed to see this as not just being put into a death like sleep or um, being cast down to be raised up again, but as something closer to a symbol of resurrection.
0: Yeah. Is Daniel a sacrificial substitute here, in a sense? How would you fill that out? Good question. He hasn't he hasn't partaken of the Passover, therefore he's not covered under the temple system. Therefore, he is uh, in a, in his death and resurrection. He acts as a sort of substitute for the Jewish people. Yes, yeah, something so like that. You could make something of that. Um, I'm I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I need to give it a bit more thought. Who is the angel who speaks with Daniel from verse ten? So we've had in chapter seven
1: in um, chapter 8 and nine. and now again in chapter 10, interpreting angels. And that angel has been elsewhere identified as Gabriel. And it seems to me that throughout this there is a single interpreting angel who is Gabriel. He's been there at every single stage. And so Daniel
0: receives a vision and then is explained to him by the interpreting angel who is Gabriel. Who is the chief of the kingdom of Persia and, uh, and Michael? Who are these figures? Yes, it certainly provokes curiosity. Um, As we
1: read through the scriptures, there are indications of sort of shadowy figures behind all that's taking place on earth. And we get that sort of sense, just reading the biblical narrative. There are many patterns that recur in the sort of villainous figures. We can think about the way that Pharaoh and the way that he persecutes the Israelites is very similar to patterns that we've seen earlier in, pharaoh in abraham's day or think about abimelech in abraham's day or in the days of isaac now as we go through those patterns it seems that there's some sort of shadow shadowy agency behind all of this and in revelation i think we have a paradigm for thinking about this where there's the dragon who's mirrored on earth by the sea beast that he brings up from the waters which is in turn mirrored in the land beast that is established by it And so that succession of the dragon, the sea beast, the land beast, I think helps us to understand that there can be shadowy, demonic and angelic agencies behind human powers. And that when we see human powers engaged in conflict, there is more going on behind the scenes. And that's certainly the case in Revelation, where we are brought, as it were, up above to see what's taking place. But it's also the case in the book of Daniel, where... It seems that this Prince of Persia is not a human figure, but an angelic one, and that the conflict that's taking place is the sort of conflict in heaven that's described in places like Revelation chapter 12. And we already saw about the way that Antiochus is going to rise up and fight even against the Prince of the Covenant. There is this level of conflict that we can see taking place on the horizontal stage But sometimes that also ventures up to heaven itself as there is an attack upon the Lord and his throne and his authorities. And this, I think, is something that helps us to understand the Prince of Persia, It helps us to understand the Prince of Greece that's coming. These are the succession of empires and their sort of sponsor um, gods with a small g.
0: How has the uh, church arrived at the thinking that Michael is the same person as the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, if I can put it like that. I think there are a number of lines that point towards this, and it's more of a cumulative case than one knock-down
1: argument. So one thing to bear in mind is the way that we read about Michael, the archangel, in the book of Jude. We also have the angel of the Lord in a scene very similar to that described in Jude in um, the book of Zechariah. So the conflict between satan and the angel of the lord and the lord and then joshua the high priest with his dirty garments and so that conflict is one that suggests that the identity of the angel of the lord is the same or very closely related somehow to that of michael and michael who is like god as we go through the text it seems that the signs are pointing us towards christ now when we put into the picture the fact that we're expecting this figure around the time um, that we are it makes more sense that it would be christ himself then along with that we can think about the way that the angel of the lord more generally within scripture can be identified with christ and so once we've got those different lines of argumentation i think that we have a stronger case for identifying michael with christ and once that identification has been made, something like Revelation 12, where there is this conflict between Michael and his angels after the sun has ascended into heaven, makes a lot of sense because Michael is the sort of angelic role of the son of man or Christ. And so as he ascends into heaven, he
0: and his angels will defeat um, Satan and his angels. There's a connection too, isn't there, with a verse in Jude where... Um... Jude talks about Michael disputing the body of Moses. Am I right?
1: Yes. So that's related, I think, to the book of Zechariah and the conflict with Joshua concerning Joshua the high priest.
0: Yes. And who, could, who else could do that but the Lord Jesus? Yes, yes. How is Gabriel connected with Adam here? I'd need to give it a bit more thought. Um, Gabriel's an interesting character.
1: Mm. Uh, we don't have, certainly not compared to the tradition, um, many named angels. But Gabriel is mentioned and appears on a number of key occasions, particularly in the Annunciations within the Gospel of Luke. So there's something significant about Gabriel, or maybe we're supposed to see since his importance within the book of Daniel, it's only fitting that in the fulfillment of those prophecies, that he should be prominent at the very beginning, at the initiation of those. But as to his relationship with Adam, I'm curious, Um, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? (laughs)
0: I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, it's interesting that he's called, referred to as one like a son of Adam. So clearly the text is giving us some pointer to the fact that he is, in some senses, like Adam. Uh, and presumably at that point, that's a pointer to the fact that he's, I suppose, a type of Christ.
1: Yes. So that's I, about
0: as far as I can go with
1: it. So we've already seen a son of man in a more capital sense. And so maybe this is a figure that's related to,
0: but similar to the son of man that's still awaited i mean he does give new birth to um to daniel doesn't he so in in that sense i'm reminded of the uh, of the creation account again where adam is is given breath by god there's clearly some sort of connection there but anyway i can maybe see
1: Mm. maybe possible to see gabriel as christ's angel as it were Christ's Mm. special messenger And so there's a relationship between the special messenger of Christ and Christ himself. So as we see the special messenger, he bears a relationship to the
0: one by whom he is sent. Yes. What does Gabriel tell Daniel in verses 20 to 21? So in 2021,
1: he tells him, first of all, Daniel's probably wondering, why wasn't my prayer answered earlier? And so there's been this period of time of three weeks he's been waiting for an answer, And at the end, we find that Gabriel's been detained, struggling for that period of time. And that, I think, is not just an explanation of those three weeks. It's an explanation of the broader situation. This is a a period of struggle. And we get indications of that, I think, also in the earlier vision in chapter eight concerning the the ram and the goat. Uh, The ram and the, um,
0: yes, the ram and the goat in chapter eight. How does this chapter, I think we've already partly dealt with this, but how does this chapter show the spiritual powers strengthening and upholding these kings of the Restoration Empire? Well, as we've discussed, the angelic powers lie behind the human powers. And
1: behind all of these things that are taking place on the stage are these big back row angelic figures that are controlling the board. Now, when we on occasion see them coming on the scene, we can see that they are in conflict with each other and that their conflict drives some of the events on earth. That's definitely the case in the book of Revelation. I think it's also the case here that the prince of Persia is not just an angel acting on his own behalf, he's driving the forces of Persia, he's pushing Persia towards certain actions and there are these conflicts among the angels and when the son of man comes on the scene and Michael comes on the scene, they are going to actually deal with this. And all these rebellious
0: angels are going to be put in their place. Mm. To what extent is Daniel 10 part of a unit that goes from chapter 10 right through to chapter 12? This is the introduction of the final section of the prophecy. So
1: there is a prophecy that runs, first of all, it's introduced in the vision of chapter 10. And then the prophecy runs from chapter 11 to chapter 12. And That is the conclusion of the book. And so in many ways, this is the point where the book arrives at its completion and arguably its climax. It's the time when we actually see how all of Daniel's prayers and anticipations will be answered. It deals with some of the greatest themes of the book, which relate to the Lord's sovereignty. And so how is the Lord going to establish his kingdom? And here we get some of the fullest visions that we have in the old testament of what it actually looks like the heavenly conflict behind the scene and also how is this all going to be resolved and that is really something that appears in chapter 12. Yes are chapters 10 to 12 arranged as a chiasm? I think so it would take quite a while to outline it but yes it's difficult to outline chiasms verbally. It's very difficult you need to see them
0: on a page I know yes you do (laughs) all right I mean occasionally it's It's more straightforward, like in chapters two to seven. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Alistair Roberts from the Theopolis Institute in the States. Uh, We're talking about Daniel chapter 10. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.